Of the Pathetic Fallacy by John Ruskin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie van Walchem. Of the Pathetic Fallacy by John Ruskin. Taken from Modern Painters, Volume 3, Part 4, 1856. Paragraph 1. German dullness and English affectation have of late much multiplied among us the use of two of the most objectionable words that were ever coined by the troublesomeness of metaphysicians, namely, objective and subjective. No words can be more exquisitely, and in all points, useless, and I merely speak of them that I may, at once and forever, get them out of my way and out of my readers, but to get that done they must be explained. The word blue, say certain philosophers, means the sensation of colour which the human eye receives in looking at the open sky or at a bell gentian. Now, say they farther, as if this sensation can only be felt when the eye is turned to the object, and as if therefore no such sensation is produced, by the object where nobody looks at it, therefore the thing, when it is not looked at, is not blue. And thus, say they, there are many qualities of things which depend as much on something else as on themselves. To be sweet, a thing must have a taster. It is only sweet while it has been tasted, and if the tongue had not the capacity of taste, then the sugar would not have the quality of sweetness. And then they agree that the qualities of things which thus depend upon our perception of them, and upon our human nature as affected by them, shall be called subjective. And the qualities of things which they always have, irrespective of any other nature, as roundness or squareness, shall be called objective. From these ingenious views the step is very easy to a farther opinion, that it does not much matter what things are in themselves, but only what they are to us, and that the only real truth of them is their appearance to or effect upon us, from which position, with a hearty desire for mystification, and much egotism, selfishness, shallowness, and impertinence, a philosopher may easily go so far as to believe and say that everything in the world depends upon his seeing or thinking of it, and that nothing, therefore, exists but what he sees or thinks of. Paragraph 2 Now, to get rid of all these ambiguities and troublesome words at once, be it observed that the word blue does not mean the sensation caused by a gentian on the human eye, but it means the power of producing that sensation, and this power is always there, in the thing, whether we are there to experience it or not, and would remain there, though there were not left a man on the face of the earth. Precisely in the same way gunpowder has a power of exploding. It will not explode if you put no match to it, but it has always the power of so exploding, and is therefore called an explosive compound, which it very positively and assuredly is, whatever philosophy may say to the contrary. In like manner, a gentian does not produce the sensation of blueness if you don't look at it, 
but it has always the power of doing so, its particles being everlastingly so arranged by its maker. And therefore the gentian and the sky are always verily blue, whatever philosophy may say to the contrary, and if you do not see them blue when you look at them, it is not their fault, but yours. Paragraph 3 Hence I would say to these philosophers, if, instead of using the sonorous phrase, it is objectively so, you will use the plain old phrase, it is so. And if instead of the sonorous phrase, it is subjectively so, you will say in plain old English, it does so, or it seems so to me, you will, on the whole, be more intelligible to your fellow-creatures. And besides, if you find that a thing which generally does so to other people, as a gentian looks blue to most men, does not so to you, on any particular occasion, you will not fall into the impertinence of saying that the thing is not so, or did not so, but you will say simply, what you will be all the better for speedily finding out, that something is the matter with you. If you find that you cannot explode the gunpowder, you will not declare that all gunpowder is subjective, and all explosion imaginary, but you will simply suspect and declare yourself to be an ill-made match, which on the whole, though there may be a distant chance of a mistake about it, is nevertheless the wisest conclusion you can come to until farther experiment. Paragraph 4 now, therefore, putting these tiresome and absurd words quite out of our way, we may go on at our ease to examine the point in question, namely, the difference between the ordinary, proper, and true appearances of things to us, and the extraordinary, or false appearances, when we are under the influence of emotion or contemplative fancy. False appearances, I say as being entirely unconnected with any real power or character in the object, and only imputed to it by us. For instance, the spendthrift Krogers bursting through the mould, naked and shivering with this cup of gold. This is very beautiful, and yet very untrue. The Krogers is not a spendthrift, but a hardy plant. Its yellow is not gold, but saffron. How is it that we enjoy so much the having it put into our heads that it is anything else than a plain crocus? It is an important question, for throughout our past reasonings about art we have always found that nothing could be good or useful or ultimately pleasurable which was untrue. But here is something pleasurable in written poetry which is nevertheless untrue. And what is more, if we think over our favourite poetry, we shall find it full of this kind of fallacy, and that we like it all the more for being so. Paragraph 5 It will appear also, on consideration of the matter, that this fallacy is of two principal kinds. Either, as in this case of the Krogers, it is the fallacy of willful fancy, which involves no real expectation that it will be believed, or else it is a fallacy caused by an excited state of the feelings, making us, for the time, more or less irrational. Of the cheating of the fancy we shall have to speak presently, but in this chapter I want to examine the nature of the author error, that which the mind admits when affected strongly by emotion. 
Thus, for instance, in Elton Lock, they rode her in across the rolling foam, the cruel, crawling foam. The foam is not cruel, neither does it crawl. The state of mind which attributes to it these characters of a living creature is one in which the reason is unhinged by grief. All violent feelings have the same effect. They produce in us a falseness in all our impressions of external things, which I would generally characterize as the pathetic fallacy. Paragraph 6 Now, we are in the habit of considering this fallacy as eminently a character of poetical description, and the temper of mind in which we allow it as one eminently poetical, because passionate. But I believe, if we look well into the matter, that we shall find the greatest poets do not often admit this kind of falseness, that it is only the second order of poets who much delight in it. Author's note. I admit two orders of poets, but no third, and by these two orders I mean the creative, Shakespeare, Homer, Dante, and reflective or perceptive, Wordsworth, Keats, Tennyson. But both of these must be first-rate in their range, though their range is different, and with poetry second-rate in quality, no one ought to be allowed to trouble mankind. There is quite enough of the best, much more than we can ever read or enjoy in the length of life, and it is a literal wrong or sin in any person to encumber us with inferior work. I have no patience with apologies made by young pseudo-poets, that they believe there is some good in what they have written, that they hope to do better in time, etc. Some good! If there is not all good, there is no good. If they ever hope to do better, why do they trouble us now? Let them rather courageously burn all they have done and wait for the better days. There are few men ordinarily educated, when moments of strong feeling could not strike out a poetical thought, and afterwards polish it so as to be presentable. But men of sense know better than so to waste of their time. And those who sincerely love poetry know the touch of the master's hand on the courts too well to fumble among them after him. Nay, more than this, all inferior poetry is an injury to the good, inasmuch as it takes away the freshness of rhymes, blunders upon and gives a wretched commonality to good thoughts, and in general adds to the weight of human weariness in a most woeful and culpable manner. There are few thoughts likely to come across ordinary men, which have not already been expressed by greater men in the best possible way. And it is a wiser, more generous, more noble thing to remember and point out the perfect words than to invent poorer ones wherewith to encumber temporarily the world. End of Author's Note Thus, when Dante describes the spirits falling from the bank of Acheron, as dead leaves flutter from a bough, he gives the most perfect image possible of their utter lightness, feebleness, passiveness, and scattering agony of despair, without, however, for an instant losing his own clear perception that these are souls and those are leaves. He makes no confusion of one with the other. 
But when Coleridge speaks of the one red leaf, the last of its clan, that dances as often as dance it can, he has a morbid, that is to say, a so far false idea about the leaf. He fancies a life in it, and will, which there are not, confuses its powerlessness with choice, its fading death with merriment, and the wind shakes it with music. Here, however, there is some beauty even in the morbid passage. But take an instance in Homer and Pope. Without the knowledge of Ulysses, Elpena, his youngest follower, has fallen from an upper chamber in the Circean palace, and has been left dead, unmissed by his leader, or companions, in the haste of their departure. They cross the sea to the Cimmeran land, and Ulysses summons the shades from Tartarus. The first which appears is that of the lost Alpina. Ulysses, amazed and in exactly the spirit of bitter and terrified lightness which is seen in Hamlet, Ulysses note, Well said, old mole, canst work in the ground so fast, and of Ulysses note, addresses the spirit with the simple startled words, Alpina, how camest thou in the deshadowy darkness? Hast thou come faster on foot than I my black ship? Which Pope renders thus. O oh, say, what angry power Alpina led to glide in shades and wander with the dead? How could thy soul, by realms and seas disjoined, outfly the nimble sail and leave the lagging wind? I sincerely hope the reader finds no pleasure here, either in the nimbleness of the sail or the laziness of the wind. And yet how is it that these conceits are so painful now, when they have been pleasant to us in the other instances? Paragraph 7 For a very simple reason. They are not a pathetic fallacy at all, for they are put into the mouth of the wrong passion, a passion which never could possibly have spoken them agonized curiosity. Ulysses wants to know the facts of the matter, and the very last thing his mind could do at the moment would be to pause, or suggest in any wise what was not a fact. The delay in the first three lines, and concede in the last, draw upon us instantly like the most frightful discord in music. No poet of true imaginative power could possibly have written the passage. Author's Note it is worth while comparing the way a similar question is put by the exquisite sincerity of Keats. He wept, and his bright tears went trickling down the golden bow he held. Thus, with half-shut, suffused eyes he stood, while from beneath some cumbrous boughs hard by, with solemn step an awful goddess came. And there was purpose in her looks for him, which he with eager guess began to read, perplexed the while, melodiously he said, How camest thou over the unfooted sea? And of author's note. Therefore, we see that the spirit of truth must guide us in some sort, even in our enjoyment of fallacy. Coleridge's fallacy has no discord in it, but Pope's has set our teeth on edge. Without farther questioning, I will endeavour to state the main bearings of this matter. 
Paragraph 8. The temperament which admits the pathetic fallacy is, as I said above, that of a mind and body, in some sort, too weak to deal fully with what is before them or upon them. Born away, or overclouded, or over-dazzled by emotion, and it is a more or less noble state, according to the force of the emotion, which has induced it. For it is no credit to a man that he is not morbid or inaccurate in his perceptions, when he has no strength of feeling to warp them. And it is, in general, a sign of higher capacity, and stand in the ranks of being, that the emotions should be strong enough to vanquish, partly the intellect, and make it believe what they choose. But it is still a grander condition when the intellect also rises, till it is strong enough to assert its rule against, or together with, the utmost efforts of the passions, and the whole man stands in an iron glow, white-hot, perhaps, but still strong, and in no wise evaporating, even if he melts, losing none of his weight. So, then, we have the three ranks, the man who perceives rightly, because he does not feel, and to whom the primrose is very accurately the primrose, because he does not love it. Then, secondly, the man who perceives wrongly, because he feels, and to whom the primrose is anything else than a primrose, a star, or a sun, or a fairy shield, or a forsaken maiden. And then, lastly, there is the man who perceives rightly in spite of his feelings, and to whom the primrose is forever nothing else than itself, a little flower, apprehended in the very plain and leafy fact of it, whatever and how many soever the associations and passions may be that crowd around it. And in general, these three classes may be rated in comparative order, as the men who are not poets at all, and the poets of the second order, and the poets of the first. Only, however great a man may be, there are always some subjects which ought to throw him off his balance, some by which his poor human capacity of thought should be conquered, and brought into the inaccurate and vague state of perception, so that the language of the highest inspiration becomes broken, obscure, and wild to metaphor, resembling that of the weaker men overborne by weaker things. Paragraph 9. And thus, in full, there are four classes. The man who feel nothing, and therefore see truly. The man who feel strongly, think weakly, and see untruly, second order of poets. The man who feel strongly, think strongly, and see truly, first order of poets. And the man who, strong as human creatures can be, are yet submitted to influences stronger than they, and see in a sort untruly, because what they see is inconceivably above them. This last is a usual condition of prophetic inspiration. Paragraph 10 I separate these classes in order that their character may be clearly understood, but of course they are united each to the other by imperceptible transitions, and the same mind, according to the influences to which it is subjected, passes at different times into the various states. Still, the difference between the great and less man is, on the whole, chiefly in this point of alterability, 
That is to say, the one knows too much, and perceives and feels too much of the past and future, and of all things beside and around that which immediately affects him, to be in any wise shaken by it. His mind is made up, his thoughts have an accustomed current, his ways are steadfast. It is not this or that new side which will at once unbalance him. He is tender to impression at the surface, like a rock with deep moss upon it, but there is too much mass of him to be moved. The smaller man, with the same degree of sensibility, is at once carried off his feet. He wants to do something he did not want to do before. He views all the universe in a new light through his tears. He is gay or enthusiastic, melancholy or passionate, as things come and go to him. Therefore the high creative poet might even be thought, to a great extent, impassive, as shallow people think Dante stern, receiving indeed all feelings to the full, but having a great centre of reflection and knowledge, in which he stands serene, and watches the feeling as it were from far off. Dante, in his most intense moods, has entire command of himself, and can look around calmly, at all moments, for the image of the word that will best tell what he sees to the upper or lower world. But Keats and Tennyson, and the poets of the second order, are generally themselves subdued by the feelings under which they write, or at least write as choosing to be so, and therefore admit certain expressions and modes of thought which are in some sort diseased or false. Paragraph 11 Now, so long as we see that the feeling is true, we pardon, or are even pleased by the confessed fallacy of sight which it induces. We are pleased, for instance, with those lines of Kingsley's above quoted, not because they fallaciously describe foam, but because they faithfully describe sorrow. But the moment the mind of the speaker becomes cold, that moment every such expression becomes untrue, as being forever untrue in the external facts. And there is no greater baseness in literature than the habit of using these metaphorical expressions in cold blood. An inspired writer, in full impetuosity of passion, may speak wisely and truly of raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame. But it is only the basest writer who cannot speak of the sea without talking of raging waves, remorseless floods, ravenous bellows, etc. And it is one of the signs of the highest power in a writer to check all such habits of thought, and to keep his eyes fixed firmly on the pure fact, out of which, if any feeling comes to him or his reader, he knows it must be a true one. To keep to the waves, I forget who it is who represents a man in despair, desiring that his body may be cast into the sea, whose changing mound and foam that passed away might mock the eye that questioned where I lay. Observe, there is not a single false or even overcharged expression. Mound of the sea-wave is perfectly simple and true. Changing is as familiar as may be. Foam that passed away, strictly literal, 
and the whole line descriptive of the reality with a degree of accuracy which I know not any other verse in the range of poetry that altogether equals. For most people have not a distinct idea of the clumsiness and massiveness of a large wave. The word wave is used too generally of ripples and breakers, and bendings in light drapery or grass. It does not by itself convey a perfect image. But the word mound is a heavy, large, dark, definite. There is no mistaking the kind of wave meant, nor missing the sight of it. Then the term changing has a peculiar force also. Most people think of waves as rising and falling, but if they look at the sea carefully, they will perceive that the waves do not rise and fall. They change. Change both place and form, but they do not fall. One wave goes on and on and still on, now lower, now higher, now tossing its mane like a horse, now building itself together like a wall, now shaking, now steady but still the same wave, till at last it seems struck by something and changes, one knows not how, becomes another wave. The close of the line insists on this image and paints it still more perfectly. Foam that passed away, not merely melting, disappearing, but passing on, out of sight, on the career of the wave. Then, having put the absolute ocean fact, as far as he may, before our eyes, the poet leaves us to feel about it as we may, and to trace for ourselves the opposite fact, the image of the green mounds that do not change, and the wide and written stones that do not pass away and thence to follow out also the associated images of the calm life with the quiet grave, and the despairing life with the fading foam. Let no man move his bones, as for Samaria, her king is cut off like the foam upon the water. But nothing of this is actually told or pointed out, and the expressions, as they stand, are perfectly severe and accurate, utterly uninfluenced by the firmly governed emotion of the writer. Even the word mock is hardly an exception, as it may stand merely for deceive or defeat, without implying any impersonation of the waves. Paragraph 12 It may be well, perhaps, to give one or two more instances to show the peculiar dignity possessed by all passages which thus limit their expression to the pure fact, and leave the hearer to gather what he can from it. Here is a notable one from the Iliad. Helen, looking from the Scaean gate of Troy over the Grecian host, and telling Priam the names of its captains, says at last, I see all the other dark-eyed Greeks, but two I cannot see, Castor and Pollux, whom one mother bore with me. Have they not followed from fair Lacedaemon? Or have they indeed come in their sea-wandering ships, but now will not enter into the battle of men, fearing the shame and the scorn that is in me? Then Homer. So she spoke, but them already the life-giving earth possessed, there in Lacedaemon, in the dear fatherland. 
Note here the high poetical truth carried to the extreme. The poet has to speak of the earth in sadness, but he will not let that sadness affect or change his thoughts of it. No, though Castor and Pollux be dead, yet the earth is our mother still, fruitful, life-giving. These are the facts of the thing. I see nothing else than these. Make what you will of them. Paragraph 13 Take another very notable instance, from Casimir de Lavigne's terrible ballad, La Toilette de Constance. I must quote a few lines out of it here and there, to enable the reader who has not the book by him to understand its close. Vite, Anna, vite, au miroir, plus vite, Anna, l'heure s'avance, et je vais au bal ce soir, chez l'ambassadeur de France. Y pensez-vous, ils sont fanés, ces nœuds, ils sont d'hier, mon Dieu, comme tout passe. Que du réseau qui retient mes cheveux, les glands d'azur retombant avec grâce, plus haut, plus bas, vous ne comprenez rien Que sur mon front ce saphir étincelle, vous me piquez maladroite. Ah, c'est bien. Bien, chère Anna, je t'aime, je suis belle. C'est lui qu'en vain je voudrais oublier, Anna, ma robe. Il y sera, j'espère. Ah, fille profane, est-ce là mon collier Quoi, ces grains d'or bénis par le Saint-Pierre Il y sera. Dieu, s'il pressait ma main. En y pensant, à peine je respire. Père Anselmo doit m'entendre demain. Comment ferai-je, Anna, pour tout lui dire Vite, un coup d'œil au miroir, le dernier. J'ai l'assurance qu'on va m'adorer ce soir chez l'ambassadeur de France. Près du foyer, Constance s'admirait. Dieu Sur ses robes, il vole une étincelle. Au feu, courez Quand l'espoir l'enivrait, tout perdrait ainsi. Quoi Mourir est si belle. L'horrible feu ronge avec volupté ses bras sans scène et l'entoure et s'élève, et sans pitié dévore sa beauté. Ses dix-huit ans, et là est son doux rêve. Adieu, bal, plaisir, amour. On disait pauvre Constance, et on dansait jusqu'au jour chez l'ambassadeur de France. Yes, that is the fact of it. Right or wrong, the poet does not say. What you may think about it, he does not know. He has nothing to do with that. There lie the ashes of the dead girl in her chamber. There they dance till the morning at the ambassadors of France. Make what you will of it. If the reader will look through the ballad, of which I have quoted only about the third part, he will find that there is not from beginning to end of it a single poetical so-called expression, except in one stanza. The girl speaks as simple prose as may be. There is not a word she would not have actually used as she was dressing. The poet stands by, impassive as a statue, recording her words just as they come. At last the doom seizes her, and in the very presence of death, for an instant, his own emotions conquer him. He records no longer the facts only, but the facts as they seem to him. The fire gnaws with voluptuousness, without pity. 
it is soon past. The fate is fixed forever. And he retires into his pale and crystalline atmosphere of truth. He closes all with a calm veracity. They said, poor Constance. Paragraph 14 Now, in this there is the exact type of the consummate poetical temperament. For be it clearly and constantly remembered that the greatness of a poet depends upon the two faculties, acuteness of feeling and command of it. A poet is great, first in proportion to the strength of his passion, and then that strength being granted in proportion to his government of it. There being, however, always a point beyond which it would be inhuman and monstrous if he pushed this government and therefore a point at which all feverish and wild fancy becomes just and true. Thus the destruction of the kingdom of Assyria cannot be contemplated firmly by a prophet of Israel. The fact is too great, too wonderful. It overthrows him, dashes him into a confused element of dreams. All the world is, to a stunned thought, full of strange voices. Yea, the fir-trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art gone down to the grave, no fellow is come up against us. So still more, the sword of the presence of deity cannot be borne without this great astonishment. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Paragraph 15 but by how much this feeling is noble when it is justified by the strength of its cause, by so much it is ignoble when there is not cause enough for it, and beyond all other ignobleness is a mere affectation of it in hardness of heart. Simply bad writing may almost always, as above noticed, be known by its adaptation of these fanciful metaphorical expressions as a sort of current coin. Yet there is even a worse, at least a more harmful, condition of writing than this, in which such expressions are not ignorantly and feelinglessly caught up, but by some master, skilful in handling, yet insincere, deliberately wrought out, with chill and studied fancy, as if he should try to make an old laver stream look red-hot again by covering it with dead leaves, or white-hot with hoar-frost. When young is lost in veneration, as he dwells on the character of a truly good and holy man, he permits himself for a moment to be overborne by the feeling so far as to exclaim, Where shall I find him? Angels, tell me where. You know him. He is near you. Point him out. Shall I see glories beaming from his brow, or trace his footsteps by the rising flowers? This emotion has worthy cause, and is thus true and right. But now hear the cold-hearted Pope say to a shepherd-girl, Wherever you walk, cool gales shall fan the glade, Trees where you sit shall crowd into shade, Your praise the birds shall chant in every grove, And wind shall waft it to the powers above. But would you sing, and rival Orpheus' strain, The wandering forests soon should dance again.
The moving mountains hear the powerful call, And headlong streams hang, listening, in their fall. This is not, nor could it for a moment be mistaken for, the language of passion. It is simple falsehood, uttered by hypocrisy, definite absurdity, rooted in affectation and coldly asserted in the teeth of nature and fact. Passion will indeed go far in deceiving itself, but it must be a strong passion, not the simple wish of a lover to tempt his mistress to sing. Compare a very closely parallel passage in Wordsworth, in which the lover has lost his mistress. Three years had Barbara in a grave been laid, when thus his moan he made. O move thou cottage from beyond yon oak, or let the ancient tree uprooted lie, that in some other way yon smoke may mount into the sky. If still beyond yon pine tree's ragged bough, headlong the waterfall must come, O let it then be dumb, be anything sweet stream, but that which thou art now. Here is a cottage to be moved, if not a mountain, and a waterfall to be silent, if it is not to hang listening, but with what different relation to the mind that contemplates them. Here, in the extremity of its agony, the soul cries out wildly for relief, which at the same moment it partly knows to be impossible, but partly believes possible in a vague impression that a miracle might be wrought to give relief even to a less sore distress. That nature is kind, and God is kind, and that grief is strong. It knows not well what is possible to such grief. To silence a stream, to move a cottage wall, one might think it could do as much as that. Paragraph 16 I believe these instances are enough to illustrate the main point I insist upon respecting the pathetic fallacy, that so far as it is a fallacy, it is always the sign of a morbid state of mind, and comparatively of a weak one. Even in the most inspired prophet, it is a sign of the incapacity of his human sight or thought to bear what has been revealed to it. In ordinary poetry, if it is found in the thoughts of the poet himself, it is at once a sign of his belonging to the inferior school. If in the thoughts of the characters imagined by him, it is right or wrong according to the genuineness of the emotion from which it springs, always, however, implying necessarily some degree of weakness in the character. Take two most exquisite instances from master hands. The Jesse of Shenstone and the Ellen of Wordsworth have both been betrayed and deserted. Jesse, in the cause of a most touching complaint, says, If through the garden's flowery drives I stray, where bloom the jasmines that could once allure. I hope not to find delight in us, they say, for we are spotless, Jesse, we are pure. Compare with this some of the words of Ellen. Ah, why, said Ellen, sighing to herself, why do not words and kiss and solemn pledge and nature that is kind in woman's breast and reason Set in man as wise and good, 
and fear of him who is a righteous judge. Why do not these prevail for human life, to keep two hearts together, that began their springtime with one love, and that have need of mutual pity and forgiveness, sweet to grant or be received? While that poor bird, O oh, come and hear him, thou who hast to me been faithless, hear him. Though a lowly creature, one of God's simple children, that yet know not the universe apparent, how he sings, as if he wished the firmament of heaven should listen, and give back to him the voice of his triumphant constancy and love, the proclamation that he makes, how far his darkness doth transcend our fickle light. The perfection of both these passages as far as regards truth and tenderness of imagination in the two poets, is quite insuperable. But of the two characters imagined, Jessie is weaker than Ellen, exactly in so far as something appears to her to be a nature which is not. The flowers do not really reproach her. God meant them to comfort her, not to taunt her. They would do so if she saw them rightly. Ellen, on the other hand, is quite above the slightest erring emotion. There is not the barest film of fallacy in all her thoughts. She reasons as calmly as if she did not feel. And although the singing of the bird suggests to her the idea of its desiring to be heard in heaven, she does not, for an instance, admit any veracity in the thought. As if, she says, I know he means nothing of the kind, but it does verily seem as if. The reader will find, by examining the rest of the poem, that Ellen's characters are throughout consistent in this clear, though passionate strength. Author's note. I cannot quit this subject without giving two more instances, both exquisite, of the pathetic fallacy which I have just come upon in Maud. For a great speculation had failed, And ever he muttered and maddened, And ever wand with despair. And out he walked, With the wind like a broken whirling wailed, And the flying gold of the ruined woodlands Drove through the air. There has fallen a splendid tear From the passion flower at the gate. The red rose cries, She is near, she is near, the white rose weeps, she's late. The larkspur listens, I hear, I hear. And the lily whispers, I wait. End of author's note. It is, I hope, now made clear to the reader in all respects that the pathetic fallacy is powerful only so far as it is pathetic, feeble so far as it is fallacious and therefore that a dominion of truth is entire over this as over every other natural and just state of the human mind and off of the pathetic fallacy by john ruskin